And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show. Presented by RIA Advisors. Where uh, both of them wore masks. Was it John Travolta and Nicolas Cage? Like they both, like they rip off their faces and it's totally somebody different. So if I face off, face off, face off, right. Actually, in the new Mission Impossible movie, which is pretty damn awesome, they have a, they have like this suitcase and it creates this mask that looks like the person uh, that they're trying to uh, imitate. So it's pretty interesting. So, but Lance, I'm sure is chomping at the bit to come back. Well, I don't know if chomping is the right word, but Nibbling. <laughs> Nibbling at the bit. <clears throat> but we should see him, hopefully, next week. Tomorrow, Financial Fitness Friday. Today, we have Mike Leibowitz. We're going to talk a little bit about bond math. Try to make it as interesting as possible. What road do you want for your bond? Yes. Do I want income? Do I want appreciation? And am I confexed by duration or directs by convection? Or do we want to just talk about convexity and help you just understand it? You know, bond math can be complicated. I, I woke up, you know, a guy woke up at 3.30 this morning. I come in and I see all these math calculations um, to greet me by Mike, Michael Leibowitz, resident nerd in chief. Looks like uh, Dow implied open looks pretty good, up 200 points. <clears throat> we are looking at obviously uh, key inflation metric that we're going to be waiting for. Is the PCE going to be what we want it to be? Huh? We're going to talk about is inflation falling and what the heck does that even mean anyway? Um, and <clears throat> Mike has been waiting for this, but the global bond measure, the heads for the biggest monthly rally since 2008. I mean, we have had such big moves in yields. So we're going to talk about that as well. So <clears throat> we get into the holiday season. I think you can still say Merry Christmas or Merry whatever the heck you want. But um, obviously there's been studies going about Christmas gifts. You know, the one thing I don't understand, uh, and I talk about this with Mike and Lance often, is how the consumer continues to spend. Possibly job security, possibly because they're miserable, possibly because we are consumers. But it is amazing to see the robustness of consumer spending, and you can never just rule out what the consumer can do. <clears throat> By now, I would have thought with where credit card debt is, um, where emergency savings happen to be, where retirement savings happen to be, that maybe, just maybe, people would be pulling back. No, they're still spending, just more miserable about it, and I get it because of what we see in inflation. But on average, and this is a new report out by Bet Ohio, it breaks down the spending habits of Americans leading up to Christmas 2023. So they talk about, okay, Texas residents, so this, they, did, they did this by state. 54% of Texas residents typically start Christmas shopping before December 1st. I am in that category. Brent's like, uh-huh, I haven't even started yet. Or oh, no, you? oh, no, we started <laughs> June, July. <laughs> really? Yes. 
man, I thought I was good. So Texas residents spend an average and of 816 bucks on gifts. That's the average. I don't I would have thought it would have been higher. Yeah, based on my spending for Christmas. Listen, I keep a Christmas budget. We're going to talk about this on Financial Fitness Friday tomorrow. The financial ghosts that you have to be aware that creep out of your checkbook in December. Ooh, Andy. Goes to Floyd. And figure and figure <laughs> I always look at how much I'm gonna spend year by year, year over year. List my people. Brett, spent more on you this year. Thank you. Because of your battle with technology. <laughs> Felt more generous this year. Of course, we know my Santa's Wonderland six hundred dollar expenditure. <clears throat> but all I'm saying is I spent more this year. About 15% more than I spent last year. 30% more than I did two years ago. So I'm not headed in the right direction. The key is, though, I budget for it. I have a margin of error. And I work within that margin. Right? So they talk about inflation. So every year what I do, Brent, is I send, I send wreaths. I send these evergreen arrangements from a, from a place called Lynch Creek Farms. Really nice place. Very affordable. They're all handmade. So just to my special, you know, close family, friends, whatever. And I cannot believe for the same arrangements, I'm paying 30% more hmm. than I did last year. Well, they're very nice. <laughs> I saw Kathy's. Posted on right, social media. Right, so I send media. one, and they, and they do a nice job for the price because yes. I go over Wilson, I'll look, and I'm like, my gosh, for the mm -hmm. price, you do a great job. But what I'm saying is prices for these, this is a small business. Yep. Price pressure is very relevant to small business. Mm -hmm. What I don't understand, and this is what I also want to pick Mike's brain about, is I understand the rate of change and how we're positively looking at inflation heading in the right direction. But I don't think Lynch Creek Farms in the next few years is going to lower their prices. They might run incentives. They might, they might push a little harder, sending more prompts through email to get me to buy. But there are internal costs, fixed costs, that have gone up, whether it's due to policies by the government, uh, regulatory actions, whatever it may be. Demand for higher wages, trying to keep employees where when you look at the labor force participation rate, you can do whatever you can to keep your good employees. Whatever it is that's getting passed on to the consumer, I do not see how that retraces. And we're also going to talk about Bill Ackman and his big bet that the Fed's going to cut rates. We had everybody on one side of the boat saying rates are going to be cut <clears throat> by the first or second quarter next year. I do not believe that's true. Something bad would have to happen for that to occur. Why would the Fed just cut rates because things are slowing down? I don't feel so well. Okay, we need a reason for that. Because Powell is now standing on the foundation of his reputation. He doesn't, be, doesn't want to make an Arthur Burns move. I think he's going to have to stay steadfast and say, hey, if I want to go ahead and lower rates, something bad has had to happen. 
So with all these pundits coming out and all on this one side of the boat saying that the Fed is absolutely going to cut rates, what if they don't? How's that being baked into the market currently? And how will it unwind? What we always say is look at the other side. Think contrarian. Lance and Mike have been saying this for a while. When you hear the R word, recession, 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 that's when it doesn't happen. I feel the same way about these rate cuts that allegedly are going to occur because people are just having a hard time and they're miserable. When we get back, Mike Leibowitz, Mr. Brain, stay tuned. news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com and we're back so michael writes a lot about well actually michael and lance write about bonds quite a bit um, and we seem to be delving deeper and deeper into the math behind bonds. Although I, I can argue that with ETFs, Michael, thanks for being here this morning. Um, My pleasure. They become just a trading tool like anything else. I don't think anybody... See, I think our problem sometimes as a firm is we're all beer, no foam. In other words, the narrative, the foam narrative is so thick that we don't give it relevance sometimes. We, we, we do all this great homework. Everything we do is proprietary. We do it on our own. We just do the math and look at the data. And this world, and understand that investing is always primal, it seems to have taken on another level of tribalism within its ranks. And it seems that bonds are in that field as well now. In other words, I used to think that the smartest investors in the room were the bond investors. And I find myself doubting that. But I do think we have a lot of clients and people that do want to make smart decisions in their portfolios, which is what really matters when it comes to bonds. And I always say, and you, we always talk about, well, you can buy bonds, you can clip the coupon, so to speak, antique language. And just sit there and wait for your bond to um, mature, reinvest. Obviously, how people are investing today, there could be quite a bit of reinvestment risk depending on where they sit on that yield curve. But there's also uh, investors that are younger that say, hey, this bond route we've had and this bond biggest, one of the biggest bond moves now recently since 2008, you know, I'm seeing bonds as a way to create capital appreciation for my retirement goals. And maybe I want to look at a different strategy. And that's where I think you have to look at beyond duration, right? We know that that's a linear measure between how a bond, price of a bond changes in response to interest rates. That's fine. But then you got to go ahead and throw in something called convexity and not to have anybody fall asleep in their Cheerios this morning or generic Cheerios, cheery ooze. Uh, 
we want to make sure that you just get a grip on it. So we have some clients that will sit there and crunch their own math because they, they go through these trials of should I buy bond A or bond B? And you were nice enough to do some of the math for one of our clients on a few bonds. And one of the questions, I didn't think I stumped him because he's very smart. I think he just thought it, he stepped back and thought about, well, hey, hey, do I really need this income? Well, or, am I, or, or do I have a trigger to buy a particular bond, wait for this premise that yields will probably fall? You know, I mean, listen, yields are going to fall. We've talked about it. It's just taking a lot longer than we thought, right? It, this, this process is taking longer. Then I would maybe sell that one particular bond at a gain and purchase stocks, probably at a dist distressed price. So when you work through that math, do you see the kind of decision he was trying to make on these roads of which bond to take? And one bond was at a discount, one bond wasn't. I think the maturities were about the same. Can you just go over some of what you did and yeah. some of your observations so it'll help other people who are trying to look at, hey, I want to buy individual bonds. I just don't want to go out and buy an ETF, but I want to, I want to look at it intelligently. Absolutely. And before I put everyone to sleep, I think it's worth um, putting a little reference, context kind of behind what's going on. For the prior 10 years, yields and coupons were very low. So investors got very used to looking at bonds as just a stream of income. They didn't think about price changes. They didn't think about the risk that price could go down or the reward that prices could go up. And, you know, somewhat rightfully so, because the Fed was basically taking all the volatility out of the market with their zero interest rate policy. Uh, so here we are a few years later and interest rates were above 5%. Prices came way down. And now I think investors are realizing that the return or potential return is not just that coupon anymore, but also a function of price. And that price change can be very meaningful depending on what goes on in the market, both up or down. So, you know, it's almost like a uh, awakening for many investors that bonds are a place to invest and earn more than a sleepy two, three, four, five, even 5%. Um, so with that, what, what do you look for in bonds? And I think the first question you have to ask is a risk question. And there's kind of two parts to that. One is just credit risk. Do I want to buy, do I want to take credit risk or the risk of a default? So that, you know, if you're talking about corporate bonds or municipal bonds, they have credit risk. So when you're looking at those bonds, you want to factor in exactly what we're going to talk about, plus what are the odds they go default? And to help us with that, the, the rating agencies rate their bonds. Uh, you can certainly go online and look at all their their uh, balance sheets, income statements, trends, mm -hmm. and try to decide for yourself what the odds of default are. And then decide if the extra yield that you're going to get from owning an Exxon bond is worth it versus just owning a U.S. Treasury bond. Um, so for purpose of this conversation, we'll just leave it at Treasuries. So again, the but, presumption is But you bring up something very important, rate. Mike, not to drug me. You bring up something very important. I need to be paid to take on the risk of corporate when I can, in essence, Correct. look at its risk-free rate and say to myself, hey, 
uh, is it worth it? I mean, right now, like I see a lot of bonds, corporate bonds, triple B, that are at a discount. And I look at what their yield to maturity is, and I'm like, they're not appealing. Right. They're not appealing compared to me buying a treasury at this point. Now, right. is that that's, itself that's, a dysfunction of the market of how are people thinking about things? I, I think it is, you know, and that's a great point. If you look at corporate, so corporate bond spreads are the difference between the corporate bond yield and the treasury bond yield, assuming the same maturity. So a 10 year to 10 year, what's the yield differential? And right now, those yield differentials are basically around the lowest they've been in the last 15, 20 years meaning that you're not getting paid to take that extra risk. Mm -hmm. Well, what's the extra risk? The risk is that we go into a recession. So there's a lot of chatter about recession. Even the Fed will tell you that they have concerns that we're either going to go into a soft landing, which may even be a light recession or something worse. Yet the bond market, the corporate bond market doesn't seem to care. They want that extra small yield. So when we look at it, we say, it's not worth it because what inevitably happens during slowdowns, during recessions, is that the, that spread, the difference, pops up. Doesn't mean that that Exxon bond we decided to buy goes bankrupt. Exxon's not going bankrupt. Mm -hmm. But what it does mean is that its price could go down while interest, while Treasury interest rates are falling, while Treasury interest, while Treasury prices are rising. So you may buy that Exxon and get an extra half percent of coupon, but you may find that your price isn't doing what you wanted it to do, at least for a while. At least at the time the you wanted it to, through. right? At the time, you right. want your bonds to be the foundation that keeps you stable. And if you've got corporate right. bonds through that turbulence, even a name like Exxon, listen, we saw it in 2008, Kraft right. Heinz, Procter & Gamble. I, I, I think Kraft Heinz, if I remember... It was like 50 cents on the dollar. Procter & Gamble was like 65 cents on the dollar. Right. For, for corporate a, bonds compared to treasury. Right. Right. Inevitably, what we see is what's called a flag to quality, where people say, I don't want to take the mm -hmm. risk. I want to go to treasuries. And right now, you know, that, that, that conversation in your head is very enticing with yields where they're at for U.S. treasuries. It's not like you're going back down to half a percent or one percent. You're still getting paid, even with the recent decline in yields, four and a half percent, four and a quarter percent. So, you know, when you look at corporate bonds, is that spread, is that difference worth it? And when you try to make that decision, go back and look over the last 20, 30 years and just look at each recession and see what happened to corporate bond yields and what happened to Treasury yields what happened to that spread and that should help make your decision look if you don't if you think we're going to have a really soft landing and if you think the economy is going to be fine and keep going then pick up the extra half percent on a uh, quality bond or or even a not so quality bond pick up a one or two or three percent more but history isn't on your side and look are we going to have a recession no one knows what's coming but yes we are going to have one sometime right mm -hmm. we, we haven't outlawed recessions. Um, so, you know, whether it's in a couple months, like Ackman seems to allude to, or whether it's in a year or two, that's debatable. But at some point, corporate yield spreads are going to rise while Treasury bond yields fall. 
So, so, getting, so getting back to the example that the client had, because what he was he was grappling, what he's grappling with is <clears throat> he wants to hold these bonds longer term, and he's really thinking about it. Ultimately, as I said, you got to prioritize what your goal is for these bonds. You're a younger man. You don't need the income. You want this money to grow. Your end destination is to sell them because he believes in our macro view that demographics, look, <clears throat> you know, I can't get two 20-year-olds together to play a ch to get a checker game going. I mean, this is how bad demographics are. And if we're bad, look at China, right? right. These rates cannot, <clears throat> these rates cannot sustain. It's not possible. Okay, when you look at the interest on the debt, and I know we're going to talk about your article in a bit, which I found fascinating. Well, it looks like we're going to catch that on the next side of the break. As we go through path one of income, path two of capital appreciation, <clears throat> using mathematics with Mike Leibowitz. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com that's some commercial with lance looking for uggs um you would think they would sell that at jimmy john's right <laughs> Yeah, I mean Jimmy John's got to make all they make all kinds of stuff. That's me. That's us always consistently making fun of uh, Lance mistaking Tommy John's for Jimmy John's. I, I see how that could happen. Not really, but you gotta you gotta live in Lance's head. There was a what was a there was a Fox show called years ago, Hal's Head, Hank's Head, and it was all about what was going on in this dude's brain. <clears throat> And it was all kinds of crazy stuff. We're going to do a show like that for Lance. It'll get million YouTube followers. It'll be like Tron. You're locked in there and you can't get out. So let's just call him Mr. Jones. Has a good question, right? He's looking at thinking 20-year bond rates are going to be about 2.75 to 3%. Long-term thesis, yields are need to, needing to drop. It's ridiculous. They are they where they are. It's just math. Eventually, the narrative, the phone gets blown off the beer, and you got to deal with the beer, although it takes a long time. Like I said, we're mostly beer, no foam. So he's looking at the gist of it, bonds that pay an attractive yield, but at a discount for the most part. One has a lower yield and a deeper discount. So for the, and one is a slight premium, right? So he's looking at these three bonds. So just based on that, I know you ran the math. I would say, and I'm not even looking at the math right now, if I wanted the capital appreciation, you'll tell me if I'm wrong or if I'm correct. Um, 
I wouldn't care much about the yield more than the discount on the bond. Like the bang for my buck in the math formula for I want to sell this bond. I believe yields are going to drop. The bank, yeah, the interest on it is just icing on my cake. But the it's the price, um, and because the nonlinearity of the yield curve, it's the price that will pop based on where the yield curve is. But tell me where I'm, all, I'm really off, or Rich, you got to just close this radio show down now. Brent will <laughs> take over, and we'll be playing Christmas music for the next— uh, First uh, of all, I'm a little upset. I thought I'd be speaking with Janet Yellen on bond <laughs> math, but I'll talk with you, Rich. That's fine. I'm not—there's um, no bond math here. Bond math. Bond. Uh, blonde math, maybe, but not bond. sound like my mom, too. Oh. Uh, I love you, Mikey. Go ahead. <laughs> So, so look, yeah. when you're looking at a bond, Rich, you had it right. It, it depends what your outlook is. So first thing you can do. So the, the client basically showed us four bonds. Mm -hmm. Three bonds look very similar. They one had a higher coupon, one had a lower coupon and one had a just right coupon. <laughs> too hot, it's too like cold, just right. Yeah. And, and Bondy locks. Yeah. And Bondy locks. And one was a zero. Blondie so locks. Just, Go ahead. Sorry. We're never going to get through bond no, math at this rate, Rich. Go ahead. No, keep going. <laughs> so a zero is just non-coupon. There's no coupon. Right. So they're issued at a discount. So hypothetically, you want to lend me money at 5%. I borrow $95 today, and I pay you back 100 tomorrow. A typical bond, you lend me 100 today, I pay you 5 bucks in interest, and I give you back the 100 tomorrow. So... Really, when you're looking at bonds, and it, this is this is the simple version. The math does get a, can be a little more complicated if you want it to be, but what you're really looking at is the duration of a bond. And the duration, if you think about a seesaw, and you put all the coupon payments and the final payment on that seesaw, what would cause the seesaw to stay flat versus versus skewing one way or the other? So it's basically the middle point of the present value of the cash flows. I just made it more complicated with the present value. But it's the middle point where you basically get paid back half the money. So what's what's but, great about it is- But I was is, wrong. I was wrong, Mike, because from the pure math perspective, the best bond to purchase would be bond three. <clears throat> because you're per, you even though you're purchasing it at par, you're gonna still well, receive the highest yield while holding the bond and it should pay the highest capital gain. Yeah, the problem the problem is those bonds were so very similar. Mm -hmm. The the zero to the other bonds is a better comparison. The three okay. bonds had right. coupons okay. that were close enough to each other where the yields were virtually the same. Um, the durations were almost identical. So, but what you can do is so a twenty year bond today has a duration of about thirteen, and as coupons rise, as we've seen, the duration drops because you have more bonds on this side of the seesaw. So the duration is going to go down because you're getting paid more in coupon payments up front versus back when interest rates were one or 2%. So you're so saying you the coupon, the coupon fills in the duration bucket, right? It, it, it truncates it, right? The higher right. the yield, 
the lower the duration. Right. And it, that's why bond buyers really don't really maturity doesn't mean a lot. You shouldn't really you should be really looking at duration when you're buying a bond, right? That's the first thing you really should be looking at versus, hey, this is the maturity of the bond. Right, right, right. The maturity can be very misleading. Mm -hmm. So, again, the zero coupon bond had the same maturity as the other three bonds, but it had a duration of 19 and change. So it's a 20-year bond, and its duration is 19, which makes sense because your payments are all coming on the last day of the bond. Right. So a zero, basically the duration is equal to the maturity. Mm Mm-hmm. But these other bonds, which paid roughly, you know, somewhere between like three and a half and four and a half percent, I think, had a duration right around 13. So here's the question for you. If you think that bond yields are going to drop one percent overnight, which bond do you buy? You strictly go for the highest duration bond. If bond yields dropped one percent last night, the zero would be up almost 20 percent. The other three bonds would be up 13% and there would be no coupon earned or one day of coupon earned, which is basically worth nothing. However, over time, those yields, so that would be the yield if rates just dropped overnight. But as you extend it over time and to the life of the bond, those yields basically start equaling each other. So the question of which bond to own is a function of duration. How much risk am I willing to take? It's a question of income. Do I need income Mm -hmm. or am I doing this for capital appreciation? Um, And it's a question of your outlook. When do you think bond yields are gonna fall? How much do you think they're gonna fall by? And it's risk, right? If Mm -hmm. the bond market rose 1% in yield last night, you would lose 19% on the zero, but only 13% on the coupon bond. Right. So what I would advise when you're looking at bonds, look at the duration and look at the yield. The yield tells you what you, if you buy a bond with a 4.5% yield today, a 10-year bond, you will earn 4.5% over the life of the investment, assuming it doesn't default, which we're talking about treasury, so we have to make that assumption. And again, the three, the four bonds that we looked at, which have one had a duration of 19, the rest 13, had yields that were very, very close to each other. And so, so when I'm looking at it, you know, again, it's income. Do I want income or do I want price appreciation? Mm-hmm. Now, you can create income, right? You can buy a zero coupon bond and sell little pieces of it as its price appreciates to par and create some income, essentially. That's true. Never thought of it that Um, way, but you absolutely can have your cake and eat it too. Right. If you want to. Right. I just think a lot of investors don't look at zeros. They don't really get them, and they don't understand that if I have a different perspective on bonds, then if my premise is where yields are going to go, I might just say, I might say I'm going to retire in 20 years, and I'm going to match my bond portfolio to that 20. Well, I think it's, you know, I was talking actually another client mm-hmm. and we were talking about bonds in a portfolio and there was a slight loss on them. And I said, but it doesn't show the income you've earned. That's right. So when you go to these brokerage statements, it just shows you how the price has changed. It doesn't show that, you know, that client has made X amount 
in coupons or stocks as well. It doesn't show that you know your IBM stock may be up two percent, but it paid a four percent dividend. You're really up six percent or twelve percent if you've held it for a year or two. So you know I think the brokers, the Fidelities and Schwabs of the world, can also be very misleading um, in how and, and kind of misdirect how people look at bonds. And but you know again the end of the day it's duration how much risk are you willing to take do you want income but the slight differences between coupons and maturity dates have very little impact on the yield that you're going to return that you're going to earn and Mike keep in mind in all fairness to the custodians they're doing something proper they're showing you gain gain loss is a function of just cost basis it's a tax function. It's not right. supposed to be a return function, but right. we look at it as such. So it's our well, prism, it's our perception of it versus the function of it that differs. That's why we right. have to run separate performance reports. Right. We're charged with earning a return, not a price change. Correct. We'll be right back. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So you, um, you were sort of waxing a little philosophical in your latest piece, Mike. Context and facts expose bearish bond narratives. I sent an email to Bob Schiller. Um, once in a while, I'll send an email and he'll respond. It's rare, but sometimes he will. Because I told him, you have got to come out with the next edition of your, your tomb, Narrative Economics. Because narratives have gone to the next level, right? So, you know, we would be going to, from flimsy foam to posturepedic foam, right? Where... We're moving on as far as the beer, the foam on the beer. So you talk about how proper context is required to appreciate better market narratives. See, I, think, I, I don't think you mix them. So you talk about this, and, and I agree. We talked about how the United States government, you write in the article, is on credit watch. Negative. And it's not the runaway deficit spending, as most, as most of us would believe, but it's really the context of higher interest rates. And then you did the math, which is horrifying, on what our total federal interest expense is going to be over the next 12 months. $1.15 trillion. That the interest expense has increased more in the last three years than in the 50 years prior. Which is unsettling on its own as the fact. But the narrative also is... And this is where you can't wrap math around it, right? It's the animal spirit of, I don't feel as warm and fuzzy about the United States anymore. I understand the interest rate issue, right? But our fiscal reckless fiscal spending ignited that 
for the most part. That second stimulus package, bonehead move, that first did that. Then we want to keep doing more. We want to double down on dumb to keep it going. So I think if I'm going to lend to Uncle Mike, and Uncle Mike has always been a nice credit risk, I'm a little concerned that Uncle Mike is not really right. So doesn't that, I understand that plays into the narrative, but don't you think the fact that we're fiscally dysfunctional besides higher interest rates? And I think you, I think you laid out the facts beautifully in this article. So we all go take a look at it, realinvestmentadvice.com. So do you see where I'm going? There's, there's yeah. this real fact as you're stating the fact. If it weren't for interest rates, if interest rates were zero, we wouldn't even be maybe having the discussion except, hey, whoa, what are you all doing over there? And, you know. We are seeming to ignore the fact that we the rails have come off what we spend on and how we do it and when to retract it. Do you, do you think that has anything to do with it? Well, I think the question is, are we that much more fiscally irresponsible than we were four or five years ago? And the answer is not really. Yes, we mm-hmm. spent a lot 20, 2020, 2021. But since then, our spending... And look, it, it, it's ridiculous how much the government is spending, and it creates problems today and down the road. But those problems are slower growth and less wealth for the citizens of this country. Mm-hmm. Those problems mm-hmm. are deflation, disinflation, right? That That's what high government spending does. And it's been proven throughout history that that's the result. That's Kathy Wood's uh, premise, too. She talks about that, head of arc. Yes. Yeah. Yes, but the problem the problem that's scaring so many people today is the interest rate that we're paying on this debt. And and look, they're right. If interest rates stay at 5% or higher, this this country's in real trouble because that interest expense is going to keep rising. That trillion that you mentioned is going to keep going higher and higher. Mm-hmm. So what we have and, and I th- Moody's is the reason I wrote the article. They they basically they made the statement in the context of higher interest rates. And then they go on without effective fiscal policy measures to reduce spending, blah, blah, blah. In the context of higher interest rates, because interest rates are higher, we have a problem. And that problem is manifesting in the interest expense almost doubling in the last few years, increasing much more than it has in years past. You bring interest rates back down at one, two percent. There is no problem anymore, Rich. Rich, I can lend you, you know, you can borrow $5 trillion at 0% interest and make good, right? It's not hard, right? So the narrative goes away. The narrative goes away. Like all the emergency, oh my gosh, what are we doing? Even though you should be looking looking at that as a separate universe and understand what the heck are you doing? And how are right. you responding and, to crises and maybe doing a little soul searching? But what you're saying is, yeah, right. that dro- these rates drop, problem solved. And we've, we've written thousands, not thousands, but lots and lots of articles on the problems of Probably too much debt. There. And we get it. Like, this isn't, we're not, we're not just pushing this aside, mm-hmm. you know, the government, government debt issuance today. It's a big problem. A big economic problem and it creates social social problems, all kinds of issues. But in context, the amount of debt they're issuing, our debt to GDP ratio 
spiked up in 20, early 21 and has since been falling. So the amount of debt versus the size of the size of the nation's GDP is actually declining, which I don't expect that to last much longer, but that hasn't been the case for the last 50 years. Um, and keep in mind, yes, we're issuing more debt, but to put that in another perspective, the economy is 25% larger than it was three, four years ago. So, you know, the, the, the market is wrapped up. Oh, the Treasury did a, you know, a $20 billion tenure issuance and the auction didn't go well because no one wants these bonds. That's not necessarily the case. Yes, there's a lot more bonds out there. And also the Fed is reducing the size of its balance sheet. So someone else has to come and buy the bonds. But but the narrative that it's too much debt does not really jibe with what's going on. And again, with the incentive, how do you fix it, right? We know that deficits aren't going to be fixed. We know at the end of the day that both parties administer high deficits. They, they talk, they both talk good games, but when they're both put in power, they both do the same thing. And we've seen it time and time again to realize that that's just the way government works today, that they want to be reelected. They're going to spend money to get reelected, right? So good luck trying to fix a deficit, but what can you fix? Interest rates. That's not that hard to fix. In the 1940s, the Fed put a 2% cap on 10-year treasury rates. We see the Bank of Japan has been doing that for the last, I think it's like five or 10 years. Uh, the Fed can certainly go back to QE. The Fed can do something called Operation Twist, where right. they actually right. buy long-term bonds and sell shorter-term bonds. The, the, the Fed and government can change banking uh, laws, legislation, to make them basically change their capital rules, reserve rules, so that they have so that they're incentivized to hold more U.S. Treasury bonds. There's plenty, you know, they can change pension fund rules. Uh, there's plenty of ways the government can get rates down. But at the end of the day, what's going to get it down? And the Fed knows this. And the Fed doesn't want to overstep that a slower economy and less inflation is what's going to get bond yields down. And there's an incredible, incredibly high correlation between inflation, inflation expectations, um, and bond yields. And yes, that that relationship has broken off a little bit over the last um, year or two. But you go back and look at history, bond yields are a function of inflation, because at the end of the day, bond investors want to get paid, they want to earn a positive rate of return versus the rate of inflation. So you know, our eyes are on where's inflation going. That'll help us kind of ground. Those are the fundamentals. Where should bond yields be? And, you know, like you said, you started PCE is going to come out today. It's expected the core rate, which is what the Fed looks like, looks at, I think it's supposed to be 3.1%. It's not the 2% the Fed's looking for, but it's certainly not the 7, 8% that we saw, you know, a year ago. It's coming down. It most economists, including ourselves, expect it to continue coming down. It's not going to come down all in you know one fell swoop. It'll be bumps along the way. Um, and it's really tough calculating inflation. And there are many variables in it that sometimes it'll go up a little. But we think the trend will continue lower. And as it continues lower, it should suck bond yields lower. 
as bond yields go lower, the interest expense will start potentially declining, mm -hmm. getting back to where it was. And all of a sudden, this debt issuance problem will probably go away and a new narrative will take hold. So you probably don't know this. Back in the 30s, I, uh, there was, well, the Wyckoff, Richard Wyckoff, created a great magazine, the magazine of Wall Street. And I collected every one of them through the Great Depression to see what people were writing. By the way, his wife became editor-in-chief, and she used her initials because no one wanted anybody to know that a woman was actually the editor of this magazine. But in the magazine, I want to see if I could pull this for you, there is this talk of how FDR was looking to lock in lower rates on farms so that they would not go out. These families wouldn't lose their property. Like the manipulation right. of interest rates is very well known throughout it. And Ben Bernanke hinted at this. Gosh, we didn't even get to Bill Ackman. I guess we will eventually uh, talk about that. I'm sure you all will talk about that with, with Lance or someone is going to be writing about his big bet that the Fed will begin cutting interest rates sooner than markets are predicting. Though we didn't get to it all that good information. Well, thanks, Mike. Appreciate all Thank your you. insights. You are our new yep. James Bond, since he died in the last film. You will be taking the role. <laughs> what kind of car are you driving? A Honda Odyssey. Oh, boy. Doesn't That's... doesn't fit. Well, for a Bond guy, it kind of fits the role, doesn't it? Okay. Honda Odyssey for James Bond. That's it. We're done. <laughs> I got to go. See you all. We're back tomorrow. Financial Fitness Friday. Rich Rosso, Danny Ratliff. That's me. Danny's not here. He will be tomorrow. See you. Mm -hmm.